You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We got She Believes Cup on the TV. We got Callie Brownson coming on to talk about a big event in the NFL today. We're going to talk about the Celtics woes with Chris Forsberg, some quarterback chaos with the Washington football team, and chat with a guy that had a career high in points last night. We got a show, folks, is what I'm telling you. We got a show. It's going to be a good Wednesday. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And we're going to get right to it where we started yesterday with an update. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And that, of course, is Tiger Woods. We, we spent yesterday's show reacting to the horrific news and visuals of the crash and um, hoped for the best, uh, got, got news that he was in surgery and had been airlifted and then transferred hospitals, which was a good sign uh, that he was stabilized and in decent condition. And now we get some more details on on, on the, the, the accident, which, uh, according to experts, uh, uh, Tiger Woods was not drunk. Um, it was purely an accident, likely from speeding in an area that uh, is known for, for accidents there. Um, and, and a lot of what's going on with the surgery that he had on his legs. And nobody better to explain that fits than Stefania Bell. I'll warn all of you, this is a tough listen, oh, oh, but it gives you an idea <laughs> of what we're dealing with here. We start with the word comminuted. Comminuted means shattered. Multiple fragments when you have a fracture. Open, that means that the bone punctured the skin. So you're dealing with an open wound on top of the fractures. They said they stabilized the fractures with a rod in his tibia. That's the thick bone of the lower leg. You put a rod in there to provide stability for the bone to heal around it. Surgery takes a long time because it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle when you have a shattering. You heard about pins and screws in the foot and ankle, so multiple injuries there. And then a procedure to release pressure from the muscles in the lower extremity. This is common with these high energy injuries, we call them. There's not just the trauma to the bone, there's trauma to all the soft tissue around it. And that can create significant swelling. You have compartments of tissue in your lower leg and if the swelling becomes excessive, you can damage nerves and blood vessels. So they do a release called a fasciotomy to take pressure off those vessels. Now, the extent of the soft tissue injury, we don't know. Fitz, you hear that, and I immediately think Alex Smith. Well, look, I immediately shudder. I have a very sensitive, uh, like, palate yeah. for the stomach for yeah. this when it comes to, which is strange for somebody that loves horror movies the way that I do. But every time I hear compartments of tissue, those movies are fake, hun. You know, I could never, like, I, there's just zero chance I could ever be anywhere near a hospital for any extended amount of time. When you hear Stefania break it down so beautifully, by the way, and, and with so much expertise, it really explains how catastrophic the injuries are and the the long road that we all presume is going to be ahead of Tiger. One thing we said yesterday, and I think remains important today, is that we're only going to deal with the information we're getting as we get it. But as you hear some of this and you hear about the rod being put in the leg, it only sort of amplifies the the difficulty that Tiger is going to face in just figuring out what's next for him and and his ability to rehab from this because it is going to be very difficult. The most important thing today is that Tiger Woods is okay, right? That's the most important thing. But okay is a relative term, and this is going to be absolutely catastrophic for him to try to recover from. Yeah, we start with the relief we all feel from what what we considered worst case scenarios yesterday, and then eventually we can move on to the future. And and I mention Alex Smith not just because of uh, 
particularly the open nature of the fractures. We heard that a lot. And if you did watch Stefania's piece with Alex Smith, you hear about these compound fractures where the risk of infection is significant because it's now an open wound in addition to everything that's being all the trauma being suffered within the bone itself. Um, So uh, according to a story in The Washington Post and an orthopedic trauma surgeon at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Manhattan who lent some expertise on this, it's likely not a one surgery condition, multiple surgeries, because you have to keep removing dead or damaged infected tissue. And you may need soft tissue procedures like a skin graft to stabilize the bone, restore its length, its alignment, its rotation, and then, of course, fix the outside as well. Um, it's it's something you keep a very close eye on, particularly because we saw what happened with Alex Smith, where it was, OK, we've got this taken care of and then took this dra- dra- dramatic and drastic turn. On the other hand, Alex Smith is playing in the NFL, right? <laughs> so I think yesterday I was pretty angry to hear and see some commenters uh, discuss what a return to play would look like before we had any information about his injuries and to also see people eulogizing a career prematurely. I'm not arguing that a return to golf is the most important or necessary or that it's going to happen. I just feel like we waste a lot of time and do a lot of extra damage in situations like this by guessing at what might come instead of dealing with what's right in front of us. And we've certainly seen people come back from catastrophic, unbelievable traumas like this and be able to live regular lives and potentially even live lives as athletes. So let's not shut any doors unnecessarily. I think the Alex Smith comparison is such a smart one, and that's some great straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Sarah, when you think about – we talked yesterday about how there were so many parallels it felt like to what we all felt with Kobe, and that's part of what gave everybody panic. It's fair to then say today it feels like there are parallels that can give hope. You know, realistically, whatever Tiger is facing in this road from recovery, it's going to be about what he wants to do and how he wants to return Because to in life in general. Because realistically, how many of us, myself included, sat there and said, well, Alex Smith is done. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we all shuddered with horror the first time he took a, a hit on that leg this last season. But he took a bunch of those hits and he still wants to play. So it's a reminder that every Everything is in front of Tiger, and we need to wait to figure out what he wants to do before we make any sort of grandiose statements about what his future looks like. A long road to recovery for him. Speaking of Alex Smith, later in the show, we are going to get into his position with the Washington football team and some pretty shocking comments he made about them not seeming like they wanted him back. Coming up, though, is it time to panic in Boston as the seas fall below 500? We'll get to it next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. From the hash. Big win for the Mavs, heartbreak for the Celtics, another loss. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. And joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline to talk about the Celtics woes, Celtics reporter for NBC Sports Boston, Chris Forsberg. It's Celtics and Hawks tipping off bottom of the hour. Chris, thanks for the time. Let's let's start with last night, right? Another loss uh, uh, in dramatic fashion to the Mavs, piled on top of the current stretch a team that's already got a lot of questions being asked, especially at the highest levels. What does this do? Yeah, it's, it's, it's full-blown panic mode up here in Boston, so much so that the owner had to come on the radio today and sort of say, like, Brad Stevens' job is safe and Danny Ames' job is safe, which was kind of like unfathomable coming into the year with so much expectations behind Jalen and Jason and, you know, what they could do. And on the same day they get anointed All-Stars, here we are, like, you know, Celtics dip below 500 for the first time in, in more than a half decade. So uh, a lot of consternation about what is happening with this team and how they get it right. 
know, they, the, the schedule hasn't done them any favors, but they just haven't played very well since really mid-January. And it's kind of – it's hard to put a finger on, like, one or two things that will that will make this thing better. But uh, I think the, the, the bottom line is, especially their superstars, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, have to be a little bit better. Uh, and they've got to figure out the, the pieces around them to, to best accentuate their talents. So you mentioned the dreaded vote of confidence that comes for Ainge and for Stevens. Should they both be safe at this point? So, I mean, if you look at the record, all right, so Danny Ainge didn't have a great offseason. When you think about the way the Gordon Hayward situation played out, you know, losing him for essentially what is this mystery box of a trade exception or whatever they're going to do with it, uh, and then signing Tristan Thompson and Jeff Teague, who will probably, if we're being honest, have struggled to be consistently impactful when they're out there. I think they're hopeful Tristan with his, with his championship experience in Cleveland, will ramp it up eventually. Uh, but Teague hasn't really, he's not even playing right now. So uh, it left this team a little thin. And I think part of the, the struggles right now is Tatum and Brown are looking around and are like, who do we trust a little bit? So, you know, not a great offseason for Danny, but the history suggests, and, he, and again, he's still got that trade exception. He can go make a pretty big splash if he wants to. So maybe he can find a way to infuse some talent before the deadline. You know, I feel pretty confident saying his track record suggests he should be pretty safe, but uh, you know, there's been some misses there in the draft recently, and so he's got some work to do. Uh, As for Brad, you know, the one knock on Brad has been when he's had super talented teams, if you think back to two years ago with Kyrie and Gordon, and then this year, uh, they haven't quite been able to maximize it, and that team fell woefully short, getting bounced early in the second round against the Bucks that year. And this year, you know, obviously coming off the, the trek to the Eastern Conference Finals for three and three of the four past last four years, there was high hopes for this team this year, and they haven't lived up to it yet. Uh, Brad has exceeded expectations in five of the other seven years, so he's got a little bit of, uh, of the benefit of the doubt there. But uh, certainly when they're falling into some of the same traps that they had in the bubble and at the end of that run against Miami, I think there's just concern about, okay, can he maximize when he has elite-level talent? And, you know, it's on him to sort of help turn this thing around. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio Celtics will take on the Hawks for the third time in eight days tonight. We're talking to Chris Forsberg of NBC Sports Boston. You know, it's pretty telling that you keep mentioning the two all-stars, and not surprising, those are the stars of the team, but... Kemba Walker should be in the conversation. And when you say those two other guys are looking around for help, the fact they haven't gotten much from him is is certainly a part of the disappointment this season. Kendrick Perkins coming out and saying he just doesn't see him fitting in anymore. What do you make of Kemba Walker? Yeah, it's been tough, right? Like Kemba's battled this knee issue for more than a year now. It started pretty much back in January 2020 when he started to feel some discomfort. Uh, they come back from the long pandemic break, and it doesn't get better, and they've got to sort of manage it early in the bubble. You know, wasn't himself in those bubble playoffs. They, they pretty much shut him down again coming into this year uh, with hope that, you know, ramping him up slowly would uh, allow him to be old, the old Kemba, the all-star version you saw when he first got to Boston. And he struggled with consistency. You know, some nights he, he has it. You know, one of those nights against the Hawks last week, he was great, and uh, then, then you, you look over the weekend at that New Orleans game, he, he didn't have it, and so, you know, he's sort of been a, a microcosm of the team, a little, you know, there's flashes of that brilliance, and then he, he's not the same player, and so the one concern from a bigger level with, with Boston is, does he, is he the right fit 
next to those two. Now, personality-wise, he's been perfect because he's nurtured them. You know, sort of unlike Kyrie, he's allowed them to blossom and be the focal point and embrace that. But, you know, the Celtics certainly need him to be impactful and, and grow into that a, a sort of a new role as the third as the third star of a team instead of being the focal point. So, you know, maybe his usage rate won't be so high. Maybe he's got to do more catch and shoot. Maybe he's got to become more of a playmaker. And, you know, so that's on Kemba to sort of morph his game a little bit to, to fit what this team needs. Uh, but it is it's certainly crucial to whatever they do that they that Kemba sort of figures it out because I don't see a path where Boston can move on because of his salary, because of his age, because of his health concerns. It's harder to see a path forward where, you know, Kemba isn't a part of the score for the next year or two. So, Chris, to be fair and reasonable here, let's, like, at least acknowledge the COVID part of this entire conversation. Like, this has been a very strange year for everybody, and the Celtics have had their share of implications from it. So how much should we factor that into this team and this organization when we're trying to evaluate these players and coaches? Yeah, it's absolutely fair. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you look when sort of their woes started, and it was right when they, they started in three, and then all of a sudden they got to take this week break because they were both them and the Wizards at that point were battling the COVID outbreak. Jason Tatum catches it, and you lose him for a couple weeks there. You know, other guys on the team, Rob Williams, Carson Edwards, you know, there's multiple impacts on this. Contact tracing takes away, guys. You know, all that being said, that a lot of teams are dealing with this, and others have figured out ways to, to sort of grind through it. And I think part of the Boston's depth issues was maybe accentuated during that stretch where you didn't have Tatum and, you know, how valuable he can be to just keep even reserve lineups afloat. You know, so some of that, again, falls back on age for not having the right pieces in place. I think they're hopeful it'll get easier and that you won't have to avoid those hurdles in the second half. But, like, schedule just came out. I mean, they've got an absolutely brutal second half, like seven back-to-back. There's a stretch where they played eight games in 12 days. So it's not going to get any easier. And, you know, again, all the teams are sort of going through this. So, you know, while, while I do see a team that's fatigued and tired and clearly looking to get to this all-star ring, you know, I think it's more than just getting a getting a breather in the early March that's going to, going to help this team turn things around. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're talking to Celtics reporter for NBC Sports Boston, Chris Forsberg. We have to let you go because it does sound indeed like you're in an underground lair that perhaps may be closing in uh, with massive amounts of snow, perhaps a blizzard about to capture you in there for the endurance of your life. Uh, Before we do that, though, uh, if you are able to survive for one more question, the last one would simply be macro big picture. How frustrated is the Celtics fan base with the way we talked about them a couple years ago, look at the draft picks, look at the young talent, look at you know where they've set themselves up for the future and how much they have not been able to capitalize on what we thought was a golden future. Man, it was 45 degrees here. The one day I can't blame like a blizzard <laughs> in, in, in this time of year. It's just the phone uh, static, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to throw my iPhone straight out the window when I'm talking about the conversation. But, um, so I will say this, it, 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 that is probably the – the, the hardest part of this all is the Celtics felt like they were positioned to be one of the elite in this league for a long-term future here, and now it's just a little bit cloudier. And now some of that stuff was out of their control, the whole Kyrie situation, Gordon getting injured and needing the, a change of scenery. You know, but, you know, every time I kind of get down on it and say, like, wow, this isn't going how they planned. I mean, they still got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They're still in a really good position. You know, they've got to figure it out on the margin. They've got to get Kemba to, to, to be better. But if all those things happen, this team can still be a title contender this year. Their, their future is still very bright. 
but I think we've seen their margin for error just isn't quite as big as it used to be, and they've got to make a lot of right steps along the way. And so there's pressure on everybody in the organization to make that happen. Yeah. Well, it's not pretty right now, but there's time. Uh, appreciate the insight, Chris. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Sorry about the phone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the worst too. When you're like, I can hear you guys fine. What's going? I don't. I, I feel good about this. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why I was yelling at him. Like he, yeah, he, he that can happens. Hear us fine. That, that, that happens. That's the inevitability. You know, I, I think it's funny though, Sarah. He mentioned Tatum and Brown. We all know that Tatum and Brown are, are, are a great combo. But the problem is, Tatum and Brown don't really separate in the East compared to some of the other talented yeah. stacks that are there. I mean, that's where we are now. I mean, Brooklyn, in what they've done this year have acquired such a dominant, at least on paper, ability to to come in and have a better three than everybody. Like, I don't want to oversimplify, but at the same time, like, if you're relying on Tatum and Brown, that's just not going to be enough in an East where a lot of teams have a dynamic duo. But it should be enough to be much better than they are. Yeah, right? fair. I agree fair. with you, but they should not be a sub-500 team with the kind of talent that they have, and especially with the expectations that just a couple of years ago we had for the way this team was being constructed. And that's why there is so much conversation about the jobs of Ainge and Stevens, because it's, look at what you had in front of you. Look at what we expected to happen in the coming years. And it's been a whole bunch of disappointment, um, despite the acquisition of some pretty big talent. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. While we were focusing on Chris Forsberg, I want to point out, goal! Megan Rapino scoring again in the She Believes Cup. It's the U.S. taking on Argentina. If the U.S. women win this, they win the She Believes Cup. Obviously, great tune-up as they look ahead to the Olympics. Um, and Rapino, it's our girl, our guest on the show. I mean, friend um, of the show at this point. Friend, friend like, of the close show. Close friend of the show. Let's right. Say it and that way. two goals for her since she joined us on Monday. So clearly appearing here on Spain and Fitz is also key to her and success. I don't want to say that we're the lucky charm, but maybe, maybe, maybe we maybe are. Maybe we're magically um, delicious. She also had the Rock the Baby. Shout out to Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris on their new baby girl, Sloan, which was just the cutest goal, Sally, I think I've ever seen. Just tears, I'm sure, from those ladies sitting at home with their baby watching. So, um, Keep it up, Pino. Coming up, we'll get back to some quarterback chaos in the NFL. We'll check in on the Washington football team and find out what their plans are. It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Pino! By the way, I mean, sorry. I just, I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm so sorry. You beat me to the punch. I mean, we, <laughs> I'd like to think that we, you know, obviously – are the lucky charm here for Megan Rapino because uh, she has scored again and the U.S. is now up 2 nothing over Argentina. And I looked at it like 10 times and thought, wow, we just have that sort of effect. That's we impact, do. Sarah. Like, come on our show and bam, you can score on anybody in the world. That's the way it works. At least that's what we're going to tell ourselves. So uh, we'll see how our next guest applies that into life yeah. in general. <laughs> on the Goodyear Hotline, we're going to head over there where we're joined by John Keim, ESPN Washington football team reporter. And we wanted to have John on as we continue to look at the quarterback chaos around the NFL and an offseason of uh, tra- transition for many quarterbacks trying to figure out what's going on. And, John, we appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Alex Smith uh, made a lot of headlines, and uh, I was surprised, frankly, to see a quarterback speak so bluntly uh, to GQ about the fact that he felt like Washington didn't really want him there, that they didn't really want what he gave them in that moment. So what was your reaction to his piece and his interview and how he spoke about the team? 
Yeah, I, I was. Surpri- I'm not surprised at the frustration. Okay, because that you kind of heard some things and like you knew at the time that there was frustration in the summertime because it was natural. I mean, he was fighting to show that he could play again. I mean, he had to fight to show that he was able to practice again. And then he had to work hard to show them that, okay, you can trust that I can do 11 on 11. And then I deserve to be on this roster and that there was a back and forth with that. So there was no surprise and you know, not surprised at all by any of that. I was surprised that he voiced that. And, you know, it certainly felt like somebody who knew that his days here were probably over. Um, and um, I think both sides will eventually move on from, move on from each other. But it, that's the part I was surprised at, not the frustration, but, but him actually saying it. And in some cases, you know, in some cases for him, it was like, hey, this is how it was at the time. Now, I think the question would be, too, is, okay, how do you feel now? How does that, how did that affect your perception of the season and how you look back on everything now? Or did you move past that? You know what I mean? That, that's the part we didn't know from that, from that. But, you know, the fact that he said it, not surprised. I am surprised at that, but not surprised at the sentiment. Is it naive to, for me to think that the team could have been thinking that behind the scenes as many of us were questioning exactly what he might be able to do post-injury, uh, but expect them to not make that so clear to him? Is that naive to think that they could somehow do both versus having it very, very clear to him that he wasn't necessarily welcome? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that's a hard one to pull off. And I don't know because here's what I know, Sarah, that before camp, well, let's go back to the documentary, okay? That was a fantastic documentary. But I talked to people the next day in this organization who were like, who's going to clear him after seeing that? You know, so like that was the mindset then. And then you get closer to camp and you talk to people about him. And it's like, well, he's really not a part of the conversation. So I don't know, like, you know, from there and I, they clearly were caught off guard by how far along he was. And by what he could still do. And, you know, he had to, for some of these coaches, they weren't around him that much. So I think if they had seen, been around him in the spring and you see the progression, maybe they would have had a gone into camp with a different feeling about it, right? So, and that's the part I don't, that it's hard to know. So I think the way the spring went, it prevented them from really seeing. And so then you have this new staff around him and seeing him for the first time and, not wanting to put him in a situation where, you know, do you make this worse? Are you the coach that puts this guy out there too soon and then you get the blame for that, right? So I think there was such that they were very, very, very cautious. But I don't know how you could have done where you say, okay, really not counting on you, but on the other hand, we're going to pretend that we are. I don't know if there's a way to do that. I don't know. We're talking to ESPN Washington football team reporter John Kime on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that it, these comments are a pretty good indication that Alex Smith feels like he's done with Washington. If that's the case, what's their quarterback situation going to look like next year? Good question. <laughs> At this point, who knows? Right. They have been they – tra- they try to trade for Matthew Stafford. We know that. Okay, you hear about inquiries into guys like Sam Donald, Marcus Mariota, um, and I knew that there were like five other quarterbacks that they were kind of going to explore to see if it was going to work for them. Now, I don't know all those five, but that's what, you know, I knew that part. 
and um, that, that we were always going to explore their options. So even before these comments came out, there was a decent chance that Alex Smith wasn't going to be back, or if he was, that he was going to have to be back at a much lesser cap number than I think it was going to be 24.4 next year. And so, I, you know, you know that would, but that was always an option because the way they looked at it is like, okay, you could go Alex Smith, Kyle Allen, and Taylor Heineke again, and maybe, you know, beef up around them on offense with that defense. Maybe you can get to nine or 10 wins and then try again next year for your guy. Um, but I, I, I clearly at this point, I would expect somebody else, whether it's a Mariota for a low round pick or one of the free agents, you know, maybe Teddy Bridgewater becomes available. They do have some experience with him. You know, uh, Scott Turner, their offensive coordinator, worked with him in Minnesota. Marty Herney, their new VP of player personnel, was in Carolina when they brought him over there last year. So there is, so they do have guys that they have ties to. And obviously Cam Newton will be out there. I, you know, I don't know that that would be the case, but he's another guy they have ties to. So I think it'll be somebody from the field, and you know, whether or maybe even Darnold. But so it's going to be some, somebody like that. But what it does do is it puts you again in flux, and I think you're going to have what you what you are going to probably end up with is a is a bridge or a stopgap, and then have to look again next year. I just I think it'd be hard to find that guy this year unless somebody and the draft falls to you that you like. We're talking to John Kime, ESPN Washington football team reporter. You mentioned earlier Cam is probably not going to be part of the solution here. Uh, so if you're Ron Rivera, what level of pressure is there for you to find, to figure this particular part out? As good as the defense has been, I mean, can they just, in your mind, go into the East without a solid situation at quarterback and still contend for the division? I think they would be difficult. And now I will say, like, the, if, if it comes to that, the way I know the way they're going to look at that is, okay, go out and get a receiver. Now, the hard part could be some of these receivers may not want to come here depending on who the quarterback is or isn't, right? So that could be an issue. But then you have other agents will say, listen, you pay the guy the most money, he's going to come. And so you'll probably, you could get somebody that way, or the draft is really good at receivers. So you can get some help there beef up the offensive line, get the run game even better, you know, and more consistent than it was last year, and, you know, maybe get two receivers or another tight end. So you're adding more weapons and beefing up. That's how they're going to have to approach it. And then, so, like, the theory would be you keep building up your roster. And I'll use Kansas City City a few years ago as an example. So Andy Reid and Ron Rivera are very tight. Well, they go 12 and four because they build up their roster. You, you hit, you have Kelsey, you hit on Kareem Hunt, you hit on Tariq Hill. So you've got these playmakers and yet Alex Smith doing, had a good year, but then you go, you're 12 and four and you aggressively go get Patrick Mahomes. So maybe that's the road that you end up going down, that you get through this year, maybe get a guy who can get through this year, maybe a couple of years, but you aggressively then go look for the next guy when you feel like you have more of your roster built up. Because part of the fear now for them, if they made a big trade, for a, whether it's a Deshaun Watson or anybody, that are you now hurting your ability to – and the, the comment was always to me was like, okay, let's say you go, go give up all these picks. Well, now can you get that other receiver? Can you get that offensive lineman that you also need? Are you going to have enough around this guy to then go out and compete to the level you need? So that's why I say the other option is, you, you get you get beef up around, use that defense, get through the year, and you know if you can get to nine or ten wins with that group, 
and then and then be in a better spot next year to maybe maybe be more aggressive. We're running out of time here, but I wanted to quickly ask you then in, in, in regards to what you just said, there are teams like, for instance, the Chicago Bears, who, in my opinion, are looking at how they ended last season as a reason to return a whole lot of pieces when, in fact, they went on a slide and they were a 500 team that backed into the playoffs. Is the Washington football team realistic about their playoff berth and looking at the rest of that division and saying it's going to get a lot better for those teams that suffered injuries or otherwise? Or do you think that they think they're still in a window of being a playoff team if they get the right quarterback? Oh, I think they definitely feel like they're in the window of, 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 of this, the latter. Get it, you get the right quarterback, you're still in that window of being a playoff team. And because I think like they look at their roster, you know, pretty young roster, they will have the ability to add around this, um, whoever it is, a quarterback on offense. And um, so I do think that they feel like they still are in that window. Yeah, definitely. Whether now whether or not that's you know is that realistic I don't know because as we you know you know from year to year the schedule changes based on injuries right. to other teams around you. you saw you saw that last year so that but I do think that they would view themselves in that window um, because of the young roster and if you you know beef up around the quarterback. He's John Kime, ESPN Washington football team reporter. John, as always, we appreciate your expertise. Thanks for joining us, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me on. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. All right, uh, we'll get back into the U.S. Uh, women's team, get you an update on what they're doing, plus a forum today that's incredibly cool for, for the NFL. We'll tell you about it. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Sometimes when you play a video game of any sport, you're not really playing because you want a challenge. You're just playing because you want to kick somebody's butt. And it feels like that's what's happening in real life right now in the She Believes <laughs> Cup is the U.S. is up now up four to nothing on Argentina. So uh, four to nothing at this point. You're ahead of me. There's another goal about to happen. Four to nothing. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah. I'm just, you know, All right. Preemptive goal. I mean, this is just it, this. This is real. Uh, let me. Whenever you catch up, feel free to just yell. Oh, goal you'll know. At the top don't of your don't, don't worry. You'll know. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. Obviously, this is part of what we wanted you to get uh, updated on. The U.S. is up four nothing in Argentina. Uh, Megan Rapino having a heck of a game. We'd like to or match. We'd like to say that that's because she was on with us, and uh, maybe that was just a little extra Goal! special sauce. Oh, there we go. We're now caught up. Sarah's now <laughs> caught up. Uh, so four to nothing is the score at this point, and uh, it, it's just a it's an absolute bloodbath. But it's fun to watch because our favorite team is the one that's ahead. So yeah, that's, also, how, that's how we like it. <laughs> Hey, I don't get to root for a lot of teams that win, so I'll take this all day, every day. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, Sarah, there was a really cool thing happening today for football fans and for NFL fans and really for women around the sport that I think is always interesting to me. There was a a women's football forum uh, where coaches uh, came together and, and prominent women around the NFL came together and really just talk to each other and uh, about some of the challenges and, and what's going on. You had the opportunity to tune into a little bit. So, I mean, start there and tell everybody a little bit of what your impressions were in watching it go down. Yeah, so I have to admit this was sort of a last-minute invite, um, and so I had some other stuff going on. So I popped in and out throughout. Um, but what was really cool was, you know, we've talked to Sam Rappaport, who who runs a lot of this and, and, and created and thought of this Women's Careers in Football Forum as a place for only women 
who are already working in football and ready for that next step, ready to be hired in the NFL to get that important pipeline to coaches, GMs, and owners. And what I saw was that the women asking questions had incredible, incredible questions and were getting super smart insights from the people they spoke with. Sheila Ford Hamp, right, the principal owner of the Lions, talking to them about where she goes looking for head coaching hires all the way down, right? Hearing from Lori Locust, one of the defensive coaches for the Super Bowl champion Buccaneers, talking about how your path might not be a direct line and that's okay. Or if you don't have the opportunity to play the game, that doesn't mean that you will be prevented from coaching. A lot of the women that we do see getting a shot in the NFL are women who have played professional or semi-pro football. And some of the women on the call said, I'm not going to have the opportunity to do that or it's too late for that. And she said, show up at a local college or high school. Ask them if you can you know, watch their practices, sit in on film sessions, get to know some of the insight. Um, and it was everybody from military members who hope to take those leadership principles and things they've learned from their service to the game, to people already working at the collegiate level who are trying to figure out what's the next step to get from here up to the higher levels. Um, and hearing from the the, the the top people, you know, Ron Rivera, Bruce Arians, Robert Sala, um, the Falcons GM, like I said, owners, uh, this this is an incredible opportunity, and more of it happens tomorrow. But I think what I liked the most was the incredible respect on both sides from those attending, looking to get some of those opportunities and 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 face to face, and then also the the respect offered by those uh, you know doing the advice giving and you know coming out of it. Bruce Arian said, "I want at least ten resumes on my desk tomorrow." Right, and, and I don't have any job openings. I want to see them anyway, and I want to see if there's somebody in there that I need to make room for. Um, Bill Belichick leading a breakout session with Mike Vrabel tomorrow. Um, there, it just is growing every single year, and and you know, little things like owners talking about how they're changing the facilities so that there's restrooms and changing rooms and spaces for women. That's never been something that I prioritized before. It's incredible the way we've been following this over the years fits to see what a massive leap there's been and who's, who's participating and the changes it's, it's creating. And by the way, Spain and Fitz, ESPN radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz at about eight thirty Eastern Kelly Bronson, who's a, an assistant coach with the Browns uh, will join us. So we'll hear some of her thoughts on, on this forum and uh, and really what the the situation is like right now like what the environment is like because Sarah, you make such a great point about the things that need to be addressed like restrooms that you don't even think about are part of it and for me i i say this all the time because in full transparency you know espn has done these sorts of things also where the women that work at the company come together i always look at it and say man it's not just a cool opportunity for the women uh, the company to come together. I'm somebody that has the chance on all these different platforms to work with a lot of incredible, intelligent, bright, uh, really talented women that work for our company. There's also the opportunity to hear and grow and learn in a way of what can I be doing better as right. a coworker, as a supporter. And when you hear some of the coaches that you're talking about that are a part of these things, it also creates a real dialogue at the absolute top level of, okay, if Bruce Arians is, is listening this way, well, what should I be doing? I mean, there's an, a moment, we always talk about how when you see it, right, When for, for so many people that are not represented, when they see it for the first time, they're able to see this moment that gives them hope. For me, I look at it, and when I see people that, that do come in and handle this the right way as men, it also makes me really proud Like to look at it and say, hey, there is something happening, something changing here that we can all grow from and figure out how to be better because we all have to be better advocates and allies for each other. 
I completely agree, Fitz, and that's why we always wish that the SPNW Summit could be open. And actually, the last three have, right, because of the the pandemic, both our, our smaller spring ones and our big annual one in the fall, um, were all virtual. And we implored people to come and check out the panels and listen because um, I think there might be some well-meaning people who come up with the same excuses. Well, I just don't meet the right women or I don't know where they are. And and there's a lot of people that are going to give you answers on how to avoid using those excuses to prevent you from creating the diversity that you claim you want. Bruce Arians, a great example of that. Right. Um, and I also think, um, you know, wh- one of the things is just the the opportunity is being presented to people who are ready for it. One of the things that comes up in conversations about whether it's women or people of color, any other diverse group that needs to be uh, more robust at the highest levels, is wanting to make sure the people getting those opportunities will thrive when they get them. It's not about token hires. It's not about diversity hires. It's about here's someone who is qualified and going to add quality to your staff. You just need to meet them, right? You just need to see them and meet them and get in conversation. And that's why I think this particular format of the Women's Forum is so smart and so effective because they're bringing in people who are existing coaches and personnel assistants and everything else that when they get into these meetings, they're ready to go and they're ready to be hired that next day. Well, there's there's such an element of opportunity here for women within the NFL that I think is an easy moment. And I say this a lot, but I, I, I mean it like there's a, a moment where you want to be proud of the sports that you love. Right. And uh, when you see this and you see the, the, the forward movement, it does give you a little bit of hope that, hey, there are things that are being figured out because realistically, as I've said a billion times, all I want for my favorite team is to have the best players, the best coaches. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your sexuality is. I want you to make my favorite team better. And to me, that's that's a simple way uh, that can make everybody better. Coming up, we'll look at a career night for one player whose reaction was priceless. We'll talk about it next. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Sometimes you get some fun content out there you can't get anywhere else. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and we're going to head straight over to the Goodyear hotline. Sarah, there are some cool moments, right, like where you see a player go off and you know that they're having a great night. But I think last night we got one of the cooler moments I've seen in a (laughs) long time. Bruce Brown, uh, Nets guard, went off last night, career-high 29 points. But maybe one of the coolest things I've seen in a long time was looking up at the scoreboard at the end of the game and realizing that he'd gone off for the 29. Bruce, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. So, sincerely, was that the first time you realized that you had hit that career-high number? Thanks for having me. And, yeah, I really had no idea. Jeff came to me and was like, um, why didn't you get 30? And I was like, bro, I don't know what I have. Like, what did I have? And I looked up and that's when I was like, I had 29. <laughs> I love that. I like that you're not scoreboard watching. You were in it just to help the team. That's something usually people are lying about after they have a good game. It's like, oh, man, I was really focused on just helping my team. Meanwhile, they're looking up. They're like, okay, okay, getting closer to my best. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was, it, I was just locked in. You were locked in. So let's talk about this Nets team and finding your place there. There's a lot of star power. Uh, how do you figure out your role, and, and how do you settle in um, after being traded in November? Um, I mean, we have – offensively, we have the three best scorers in the league. Um, and I knew coming in, I was just – I was there probably to play defense. Um, and then, yeah, offensively, I can cut, get to the uh, the rim a little bit, and then – uh, just try to make it easier on those guys because you know they have their this scouting report is all for them. Um, so me 
that in pick and rolls, cutting to the basket, and making it is making it easier for them on the offensive end. We're talking to Bruce Brown, Brooklyn Nets guard. Sarah just mentioned it traded in November. Like, what's that moment like when you're going through a trade in the middle of COVID and you're trying to work out, uh, you know, sort of your feel with a new team? Yeah, it was definitely tough. Uh, it took time to, to get used to the people there um, in, in Brooklyn. Um, I was actually walking in the facility in Detroit to work out when I got traded, when I found out. Um, mm. It felt really weird. I didn't know what to do or what to, like, what to do after it. Um, then I headed to Brooklyn that night, and then I met everybody, um, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, this Nets team uh, produces a lot of content. When they're high-flying <laughs> and scoring, we're all talking about can they be beaten. When they have an off night defensively, we focus on whether that could be the Achilles heel down the stretch. Internally, it's clear that you have offensive superpower, and it's clear that the defense is where the focus needs to be. Are you talking about that in such plain terms? Is it really in practice day in and day out and in film sessions, focusing on understanding where the flaws are on the defensive side? Yeah, for sure. We got to lock in on defense if we want to win games. Um, that's literally kind of the only thing we really talk about because uh, the offense is going to take care of itself because we have the three best scorers. But, uh, yeah, we lock, we watch film. Uh, and it really is just effort on the defensive end. we got to want to uh, stop people, and then it leads us to easy buckets on the other end. So, Bruce, we're talking to Bruce Brown, Brooklyn Nets guard, uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. With all the star power you've been talking about, let's also acknowledge that sometimes you haven't had all three of the guys on the court at the same time. So how different is the offense when everybody's there and everybody's healthy? <laughs> Super easy for me. Um, because they try to wide load up. open, really super easy. Because they everybody tries to load up and take away or double team whoever has the ball, whoever's in the ISO. So I can just cut back door usually every time and get an easy layup. Um, so yeah, I mean the team's going to keep doing that. I'll take the easy buckets, but uh, they're going to have to adjust somehow. And I don't know what they're going to do, but <laughs> they got to do something. Bruce, I want to talk to you about your coach, Steve Nash, in general. But first, this quote stood out to me. He said, Bruce is remarkable. The guy mostly played point guard last year, and he's playing, what do you want to call him, our center? He's picking and rolling and finishing with two bigs in the lane. Tell me about that. And and, and have you felt like you're you're playing outside of your comfort zone or maybe uh, taking on responsibilities you haven't previously in your career? Uh, I, I don't think it's outside my comfort zone. I think the player I am um, – I fit in where I can, uh, do what I can to help the team. Um, and me playing the five is helping us uh, on both ends of the floor. Um, so whatever the team needs me to do, I, I'm willing to do. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I did play point guard most of the year last year. Now I'm the five, <laughs> so it's pretty cool. <laughs> I love just it. Like, you're so casual. It's cool, with all man. Of it. just, yeah, guys are like no, a foot good. taller than me. No big whoop. <laughs> So, obviously, we're always, like, we, everybody with a microphone, is always talking about Kyrie, KD, Harden. Like, we, we, we get that. Uh, so, what are, what are the guys like? Like, what's the gel like for you guys as teammates trying to get to know each other? Gel? I mean, we're just always around each other. You really can't do much now that, at COVID, that COVID's happening and we travel. So, we're really all around each other. We play the game a lot. There was one time in Boston, like, we uh, – we were all in my room playing the PS5, we playing Madden, <laughs> uh, we listen to music. So we just try to build chemistry off the floor, get to know each other, learn each other's uh, habits and what people like to do off the court. Okay, no, no two, two follow-ups here. One, what's your <laughs> team on Madden? And two, who's the best of all you guys on Madden? I'm the best one easily by far in Madden. <laughs> um, 
But usually, you know, since I'm so good, I do random. So depending on who I'm playing, I let them pick my team. Wow. Or, you know, I just do random. That's yeah. a flex That's a right there. That is such right a flex right there. Yeah, that is it a, that doesn't is a matter true, who yeah. I'm playing. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Definitely wow. pretty confident in my batting ability. Wow. Uh, Spain and Fitz, we're talking to Bruce Brown, Brooklyn Nets guard. Career high of 29 last night, 13 of his 28 in the fourth quarter as they topped the Kings, a seventh straight win for the Nets. But let's get back to Steve Nash. Obviously, a spectacular star in his own right as a player, but first-time coach, and a lot of people had questions about how he might handle the big egos, the big personalities, and um, the, the stars coming in. What's it been like with him as a coach, and, and how would you compare him to maybe other coaches you played for? Definitely a player's coach. Um, I can go to Steve and talk to him about anything. I always try to go to him and ask him what I can do better out on the floor because, you know, he's a point guard and he sees, he's seen a lot. Uh, a lot of different coverages uh, was thrown at him. So um, I just try to go to him, pick his brain a little bit, uh, and he'll tell me, like, what he thinks I should do. Um, little things we do, like on the uh, weak side, like I'll flare for Joe, cut to the rim to try to get an easy bucket. Um, but, yeah, but mostly try to take his brain. He was, he was an MVP in this league, a great point guard. So, uh, yeah. What's the adjustment like? I mean, you've we've talked a lot about it here, but you've adjusted from positions. You've adjusted in, in your role. I mean, for you, how do you find, like, the, the moment where you feel like you can be the best you every night when your role changes so much night to night? Um, I just think I'm ready for everything. Uh, we have this group called the Stay Ready Group uh, with guys mm-hmm. who don't get a lot of time out there. We play. Um, so I kind of, when I do play with them, I kind of work on other things uh, in my game. Um, shoot the ball more, more on ball, uh, ball handling. Um, so, yeah, I just try to stay ready and, and fit where fit in where I can. The Stay Ready All-Stars is something our boy Bamani Jones has coined. I believe it is uh, players constantly and at all times ready for an altercation. I imagine your Stay Ready squad is just ready to play at any moment. Would you consider yourself also a Stay Ready All-Star? It's all for sure. Um, okay. I also okay. play Tyler Johnson in, in that uh, that category <laughs> and also uh, Landry. Whenever they come in, they give us a spark and they play really well. All right. Well, we know you were picked up for your grit. So I guess that translates both on the court and also uh, if you don't, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Uh, I appreciate sure. I appreciate that. Bruce, man, we appreciate you. Congratulations on the, the big night last night. Uh, I can't 30 wait next to time? Let's get 30 I, I, next time. Round number. I mean, yeah. do you, would you have played it different? Hey, if you knew you had 29, would you have played it different to get to 30? Be honest with us. I honestly, if I knew I had what, what the 27, I probably would try to make that, uh, that last and one layup. There you go. <laughs> I kind of blew it up because I got fouled. <laughs> Next time. We appreciate you hanging out with us. I'll find you sometime and, you know, I'll kick your butt in Matt. No, thanks wow. so much for joining us. You got to oh, throw no, that trash out. Like, happening. we got to. <laughs> I mean, that's what we got to do. Bruce, best of luck rest of the year, man. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Uh, Don't forget Mavericks taking on the net Saturday night, 8 Eastern on ESPN Radio, 8.30 Eastern on ABC. Again, kudos to him, 29 last night, 13 of his 28 in the fourth quarter in the 127-118 win over the Kings. That's seven straight for the Nets. So uh, coming up, a huge Western Conference game on ESPN later tonight, and a second-half NBA schedules are out. We'll get into all of it next on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. And it fits on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Speaking of Progressive, ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Small business protection for more than just vehicles with insurance expertise to keep your company moving forward. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com.
Sarah, big matchup tonight. The Lakers are taking on the Jazz. You just heard it as we were coming back. Everybody's talking about AD and the Achilles and the rest. And But speaking of rest, now there's some question about how many minutes LeBron should be playing. What should they do? Realistically, all of this is righted very simply by the Lakers coming out and winning a game. But that's easier said than done right now when they are minus a, a major component for their team. I mean, I know that we're used to LeBron just being able to go out and will a victory no matter who's around him. But let's be real, in this current climate right now, the Lakers are without AD, and that's going to make it difficult for them to win games against a team as good as the Jazz. So let's see how it plays out. I'm still not going to panic, though. Like I feel like I'm so far on the back burner of panic for the Lakers that there's very little that will actually make me say, huh. Yeah, I think my panic meter is how frustrated I am that we're going to get this matchup again without the biggest pieces um, on the Lakers side at Intruder and Davis that make a difference. I'd like to see how this Jazz team fares against a full-strength Lakers team. That's the thing that we miss out here on. I, I don't worry about if the Lakers lose or, you know, if they win, I don't necessarily perceive it as, as a massive game-changer. I mean, if I were to panic, it would be if they were to come out and say that they're worried that Anthony Davis isn't healing and that that Achilles might actually be something that prevents him from appearing in the postseason. Outside of that, it's more about this matchup and the fact that, you know, the, the Jazz are trying to protect uh, a win streak, 14-game home win streak, and uh, trying to remind all of us that might be doubting them that they can take on the best of the best in the West. Um, but again, without Schroeder and Davis, you sort of have to temper whatever your reaction is if the Jazz get another W. Yeah, it feels like this is sort of a lose-lose for the Jazz. If they lose this game, it's, oh, my God, you couldn't even beat this iteration right. of the Lakers. And if right. they win this game, then it's like, eh, I don't know. It was this iteration of the Lakers. That's just sort of where they're stuck right now. And, you know, again, that doesn't uh, that doesn't necessarily bode well if you're, uh, you know, one of the three Jazz fans in the world. But if you are, hey, like, you, okay, you, uh, okay. I know, I'm just throwing shit. Nice. I'm just throwing shit. Nice. Well, Listen, I, mean, I will say this much. I feel bad for Jazz fans because if this team, nothing could change about them. And if you put them in L.A., New York, Chicago, Miami, any of the main cities, people would be going nuts for them. They're 25 and 6. They're top 5 in offensive efficiency. They're top 5 in defensive efficiency. They're shooting three-pointers at a rate that's never been done in NBA history. And yet, the the response mostly is, yeah, Jazz are a great team. Let's see them do it in the playoffs. That's it. I mean, that's all anyone has to say about them. And so I, I, sh- I shout out to you, Jazz fan. I hope you're enjoying this and you don't care whether your team's getting the love that they deserve because they sure aren't. But let me counter that. Like last year when the Bucks were on a run, everybody was saying, nah, they got to do it in the playoffs, right? Like, I mean, that's just what but happens. The Bucks aren't hurting point. for attention, well, right? Uh, and I this mean, was year, this was, this was feeling like a repeat. Um, I don't know that the Jazz have ever gotten as much love as they've deserved in recent years when they were quite, quite good. I, I'm all in on the – look, in a beautiful world, I would love to see the Jazz go out and win the West because I want unpredictability in the NBA. You always talk about in the NFL you want chaos. I want chaos in the NBA. I think that that is just the, – the best thing for the sport would be for the Jazz or the Nuggets or somebody to come out of nowhere and just – Find their way in and win it all. I'd be all in for that, mostly because I don't have any money on it. So uh, I'm all in on <laughs> yeah, seeing that happen. Team. <laughs> I'm, I'm just also, you know, I'm just realistic about, you know, the the level of love for the Jazz sometimes. That, that's all. Uh, there is plenty of love for the NBA, by the way. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We got the second half of the NBA schedule released today. And we talked a little bit about this before, Sarah, but I'll double down on uh, there are some logistics that make this very complicated, but I love what this is for the NBA. Like, I love this opportunity to come in 
and now look at it and try and get hype for second half matchups that, that may mean something and, and the league sort of holding that level of suspense, it at least keeps me engaged and involved in what's coming down the pipeline instead of letting it all go in one year and out the other months ago. So I, I love, although I know it's difficult to do in most years, the split schedule release. Agreed. It's mostly dis- disruptive for media, right? TV schedulers, media that are planning travel for the fans who in most places are still unable to attend. It doesn't affect, oh, I was going to try to plan a, a game with, with my family or something. Um, so th- it does provide that second night of excitement, looking at looking at when the games are going to be played and against whom. They, they were smart to do this. We've pushed for flexibility from every league during the pandemic, and we have never understood leagues who unnecessarily announced or promised things and then later had to pull back. This was very smart of them to do. Um, they do have to figure out how to have all 30 teams play 72 games despite the pandemic, and that means that some teams will have a ton of back-to-backs. That means that some teams will have to cram a bunch more games. Uh, Spurs and Grizzlies, for instance, have to get 60 games into 68 days, right? Meanwhile, the Clippers doing great. They only have 34 games to be put into 67-day period. Um, So there's going to be a disadvantage to the teams who struggled the most to fit things in in the first half. Um, But I I think the NBA was wise to do it this way this year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the difference, when you think about it, when you're talking about the Spurs and Grizzlies having to get 40 games in 68 days versus 34, like that's a big difference. So I wonder what impact that has for the Clippers going into the playoffs, who will by natural, like by the nature of the schedule, the Clippers are going to be more rested than some other teams because of the way it plays into the second half. That part of it obviously is going to be a real part of the conversation because, frankly, in this COVID world, you're going to have to balance any sort of momentum as a team. You're going to have to balance getting ready for the playoffs, but you're also going to have to balance rest, I think, more than ever before because, realistically, nobody's fighting through this season to just make the playoffs. This isn't the bubble where you're coming in and saying, well, I guess we'll take a few extra games. You know, If you're the Clippers, you're looking at it saying, whatever we have to do to get ready for the playoffs, that's all that's going to matter. So I wonder how many teams are going to manage rest differently running down the stretch just because of the way these games are going to be compacted. Well, and you remember that last year we thought that the ways the Clippers had been able to insert so many different players, or at least I thought this, into their starting lineup because of DNPs, because of rest and injury and otherwise. We were concerned about how that starting lineup would gel, but we also thought because of COVID disruptions and bubble issues that they might fare better than any other team in terms of having to adjust and have a bunch of different lineups at play. Didn't happen that way. It ended up that that starting lineup never quite brought it together and and came together when they needed to. And so interesting now, to figure out exactly uh, what this Clippers team is going to look like. And there's a ton of pressure on them to, 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 to be something that they couldn't be last year and to, and to remind us to keep them, you know, as contenders, because if the same thing happens, that collapse of last year, they're going to get back in the boat with the rest of the teams that we say, do it in the postseason. We, we don't believe in you. Another interesting note for this schedule, the second half schedule will conclude Sunday, May 16th. That will then set up the play-in tournament from May 18th through the 21st. That's going to feature the teams that finish from 7th through 10th in each conference playing for the final two playoff spots on each side of the bracket. So the playoff tournament is here to, to, to give us a little bit of excitement going into it. Uh, going to be an opportunity for the NBA to sort of make the end of the season 
a little bit more dramatic in a year that already seems so strange. I'm not sure they needed more drama, but they're at least going to give themselves the opportunity to give us some meaningful games for teams trying to find their way into the playoffs. So uh, all eyes will be on that as we continue to break down the NBA schedule. Coming up next, one coach that was a part of a forum today that can tell us a lot about the current environment for women around the NFL. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. This is the hype video that helped welcome in this year's NFL Women's Careers in Football Forum. You gotta love the personalization. We got a rap about the women doing the work and the women who are hoping to join them. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. I was a fly on the wall for parts of it. I wish I could have been able to stick around for every bit, but someone who did... Cleveland Browns assistant coach, and I believe still chief of staff over there, Callie Bronson, who's going to give us some of her biggest takeaways. Callie, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me, guys. You're still chief of staff as well, right? I hope so, yeah. Okay, I was making sure. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of that title that we we were never sure what that meant. Like, do you take over the whole damn team if something goes wrong? or you know? But, but I, I wanted to make sure we still had your title right. So um, before we get into your season with the Browns, which I do want to talk about, what are some of the biggest takeaways from today? Because I saw an incredible number of new faces representing GMs, coaches, owners, um, in- including you know other others of your brethren as well. Today was one of those days where you, uh, when when the day's over, you you driving your car and you're just kind of like, I'm 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 just reeling from today. It was so incredible, and it was only day one, and tomorrow is jam packed with a lot of phenomenal people as well, but. I mean, today when was so it was, it was so impactful in so many levels, and you know we started off with the panel with me, uh, Jen King, uh, Lori Locus, and Cassandra Garcia from the Rams, and we were obviously on with the commissioner and his wife Jane, and they were the moderators, and it was like it was it was an incredible discussion, and and I know the participants gained a lot from it, um, but I mean it was an incredible day through and through, and some of the biggest takeaways that come from it, and, and these are like the big wow moments for me where I sit back and, and Callie five years ago is just so taken back by these moments, but, uh, and I'll keep some of the names out of it just to keep some of the wow factor there. But we had a female NFL owner who was so impacted by a question from one of the participants today, where she asked for this participant's contact information to be able to talk to her after. That's amazing. Um, and then you have a NFL head coach who got a, a DM through Zoom, which is the virtual world we're living in right now, <laughs> from a participant that was so impactful to him that he's setting up further conversations with her for a potential position later. And then on top of that, you have Bruce Arians and Jason Light who get on the Zoom call today and basically demand 10 resumes on their desk uh, by the end of the week. I mean, that's unbelievable to me. Just it, It's crazy, uh, you know, as somebody who was a participant in the forum from year one to see now this is where we're at. Um, it's, it's amazing. And then tomorrow is, is unbelievable. I'm just going to leave it at this. Bill Belichick is leading a breakout <laughs> session with the coaching people like this. This is unbelievable to think about, but it's so amazing and such a great day for day one for women. Day two is going to be even more impactful. And really the way that I feel about it is how much we just progress in 24 hours as women in football is amazing. And mm-hmm. I'm so excited for it and, and, and just fortunate uh, for the league, Sam Rappaport, Vanessa Hutchinson, who's putting all this stuff on. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You mentioned Callie. You said Callie five years ago would have been stunned. So give me a, a, the sort of your sense of the difference in the tone towards women around the NFL today versus five years ago. 
yeah, you're starting to see a lot more interest. You know, obviously there's a, a lot more women involved now as opposed to five years ago. But now you're starting to see some of these teams who maybe were like, eh, you know, we'll see, we'll see, who are now engaged now in the forum and looking and actively seeking uh, female candidates for some of these roles. Uh, and that's a, that's a total difference because five years ago when all this started, it really just kind of started as a, as a way to encourage women to get more involved and to educate themselves and to grow in the sport. And now it's like it's a candidate pool. To be a participant in, in this forum makes you a, a potential candidate for a hire, and that's amazing. And, and, and just today to be able to see all of the different teams represented, you know, that wasn't the case five years ago. Five years ago it was a handful of teams who were involved in, in seeking candidates and educating candidates on what it took to be successful in the NFL. And now you have so many teams involved. Again, I'm just going to throw this out there. Bill Belichick is talking to the coaching <laughs> panel. You know, next, like, it, it, it's amazing. It's amazing to see how much this has grown. Um, and it's really exciting to see. And, and a lot of it's happened, you know, in the past five years, in the past three years, more particularly with, with how much ground we've covered. But um, it, it's amazing to see the growth. Callie Brownson, Cleveland Browns assistant coach and chief of staff with us here on Spain and Fitz. Yeah, I wrote a story about this event and some of the women that have resulted in uh, getting jobs because of it back around the draft. And I'm sure the numbers have changed a bit. But when Sam Rappaport got hired as the NFL Senior Director of Diversity and Inclusion and started this forum, um, you know, it was uh, invitation only and, and several teams were involved. But it went from nine teams in the first two years to three and four years uh, in, 25-plus teams attending. And you look at the lineup of people that were there today and the respect that they gave to the women candidates who were asking questions and looking for advice was really what stood out to me and the depth of the answers that were given. It was very clear that these people were looked at as serious candidates who would be able to help a staff and who are at the level ready to be hired. And Callie, to me, that feels like the secret sauce here is that it's not just networking and creating a pipeline that might not otherwise exist. It's finding and vetting people who are ready for the jobs right away so that it feels useful to both people involved in the exchange. I totally agree. So, you know, this year we had 40 qualified women who are participants in the forum. And when I say qualified, to your point, like these are women who would be ready to take an NFL job tomorrow. And I think to your point, that's, that's so right. This is more than just a workshop at this point. This is a candidate pool. These are women who, who, who are qualified and ready to step into the NFL whenever the opportunity presents itself. And given the opportunity because of the forum to have a platform to be able to be impress, impressive and make an impression on, on these NFL owners, GMs, head coaches, directors of football operations, the breakout sessions tomorrow are going to get them into more intimate settings where they're seeing directors of player engagement, directors of football operations, coaches, uh, GMs, scouting, uh, you know, directors of player personnel. Like they're going to see a lot of that stuff on a, on a closer level. But to your point, I mean, this, this became this large pipeline to this pipeline of, you know, these are qualified women who are ready to go. You know, they're just seeking the opportunity and, and the vetting process that's happened to be able to bring these women you know, to this front stage has been incredible to see and, 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 the, and the quality of, of women that you're being able to see. To your point, like today, some of these questions that were being asked, you know, to me, I, I kept being like, that's a great question. Every single time a question came out, I was just like, wow, that's, that's a phenomenal question. And I was even intrigued on my end, already having kind of a quote unquote seat at the table to hear the answer to that question. And I think that's really, really important. Do you feel pressure having a seat at the table, understanding that 
there's a, a movement happening right now to to have a level of success just to continue to open doors? No, you know, I, I, I've never seen it as pressure. I've seen it as an opportunity always, you know, an opportunity to continue, one, to live my dream. And by living my dream and doing really well at my job, I'm opening doors for for those women who are sitting in those chairs as well. So, no, I think it's I think it's great. It's everything that I've worked to this point to happen was to be able to have opportunities where now you have these women who are highly motivated and qualified candidates. It's the whole reason for all of it. Um, and, and the more doors that are open, the better I feel about what we continue to do and how hard I work. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel pressure about it. It, it brings a massive smile to my face to know that um, this is where we're at in year five of this forum is to have such qualified individuals and, and, and I welcome them to continue to challenge themselves. And I challenge myself to get better as well. And after listening to some of these women talk and hearing some of their backgrounds, I mean, I was just blown away and I was like, you know, Hey, I should probably get to work as soon as this is over. Cause <laughs> somebody's, somebody's talking at my heels right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's, but that's the point, you know, that was the purpose. That was, that was the reason that, you know, all of us got into it in the first place is, it's time to it's time to bring women into the equation and for it to be competitive as well. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Callie Brownson, Cleveland Browns assistant coach and chief of staff. I have two quick ones for you about this season with the Browns. First of all, COVID affecting the coaching situation more so probably than any other team, and that thrust you into some opportunities and some responsibilities. Um, take me through your thinking process when you find out coaches are out and you're stepping up. Yeah. Uh... You know, not ideal, but also not in, you know, we definitely anticipated potential situations happening. Um, and one of the great things about Coach Stefanski is he's a forward thinker. And uh, early in the season, he and I sat down and he said, we've got to be smart about this and, and not think that we are, are isolated from what could potentially happen. So we need to put together a very detailed contingency plan. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, we put together a contingency plan for every single position that we had on the coaching staff, as well as the central personnel around the coaching staff. And uh, that, you know, you, you don't ever want to break the glass unless you have to, but it's important <laughs> to be able to have the fire extinguisher on the other side of the glass if you need it. Um, and unfortunately we had to break the glass, but it, it was great that we had that contingency plan in place because by doing so and by constantly uh, reiterating the fact that we have one in place, when those things happen, uh, you're ready for it. And the people who needed to step up were ready for it. Um, myself and then obviously, uh, you know, Ryan Cordell stepped in from an offensive line standpoint. Standpoint. Alex Van Pelt was always ready in case the inevitable happened or, or not the inevitable, but, but the, the unforeseen circumstance where Coach Stefanski went out um, you know, it, it was it was one of those situations where everybody who was asked to step up was ready because, you know, they were aware of the contingency plan. So it was something we practiced week in and week out. So, you know, it, it's not something you want to have to go to. But I was really, really, um, you know, content with the fact that we continued to practice that and talk about it week to week. Yeah, and it worked out, obviously, even in the extreme coach uh, uh, circumstance of losing your head coach for a playoff game. Uh, last <laughs> yeah. one, and, and we're really out of time, but I wanted to ask you quickly, you know, we're we're talking in, in such a positive terms about all this, which is fantastic, but in this year with the Browns, were there any negative experiences with players, <laughs> with opposing players, with coaches, with staff? I mean, it, it, is there something you need to still be able to say about this being a, a learning experience for everybody involved? I think the only real opposition that I have any 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 bad ill towards is is COVID itself. But no, no, no players and no coaches. But Good. the situation itself, 
made it very, very, um, you know, challenging, obviously, in, in many facets. But, again, you know, a credit to Coach Stefanski and the culture that he built in the building. We were ready for anything all year. Um, and, and, and didn't matter how hard we were tested in what capacity, we were ready. And, and that's a testament to the culture that he and Andrew Barry have built in this building. And, um, you know, and, and, and you can see the result of that. Yeah. Well, fantastic season for you guys. Looking forward to next season. And thanks so much for the insight on today. Enjoy the rest of the forum. Thanks so much, Callie. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Callie Bronson, big uh, big fans of her here at Spain and Fitz and, and love to see the progress. It's it's really easy to track. It's tangible, uh, the results of them implementing this forum. And, and every year we see more representation, which is so great. Coming up next, Timberwolves with a coaching hire that made some waves. We'll get into that next. ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Oh, we got some mom goals happening. And yeah, I am still delayed and still talking about the soccer game that I should be paying attention to a little bit less because I'm hosting a radio show. But mom goals as in a goal by Alex Morgan, her first since having her baby. And uh, we're here for it. And we love it. And the U.S. just absolutely dominated this She Believes Cup. Uh, They get the win yet again. Five nothing and an assist for Sophia Smith. Uh, incredible debut for her. Good um, news all around. You're, you're still behind, right? Oh, no. Is it 6-0 now? I mean, oh, I don't want to run. Okay. Just, all right. I'm ready see. for it. I'm here for it. I figured I can't be that behind that they scored another one, but now I'm starting to think they might have, and I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when I'm in my radio hole and I'm watching on a TV feed that is extremely slow. You know what? Uh, While you wait for the word goal, I'm just going to say, you scream goal when you're ready. I'll just tell okay, everybody the college the re- basketball okay, season is heating up. That means the Wendy's Wooden Watch has begun. Go to ESPN.com. Search Wooden Watch for the list of the Wooden Award late season top 20 nominees to watch. As the season rolls on, players to keep an eye on include Oklahoma State freshman guard Cade Cunningham. Absolutely incredible. And Stanford senior guard Keanu Williams. The John goal! R. Wooden Award presented by Wendy's. That's teamwork that makes the dream work. Let's go. Kristen Press, make it six. Okay, ladies. Oh, I'm so happy. Spain and Fitz, <laughs> Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, we'll get into more of this as these ladies continue to prep for the Olympics and look like the dominant, dominant queens that they are. But I wanted to get into something that we missed. We didn't have a show on Monday, and this is when most people talked about it, but we have some new sound that I wanted to get into, and it's from Gerson Rosas, the president of the Timberwolves. He was on Freddie and Fitzsimmons last night. Talking about them firing and hiring a coach within basically a day. It had a lot of people talking about whether they really put a net out for a variety of candidates, whether they considered diverse candidates that were under their own umbrella already, and whether there should be questions about the hiring process. This is what he said about the two folks in the Timberwolves organization that a lot of people pointed to and said, why not not these guys? David Vanderpool is our associate head coach. Uh, we we had him in our last head coaching process. Uh, we hired him away from Portland as a result of that process. Uh, Pablo Prigioni was another internal candidate that was considered. Uh, and those are guys that we've invested a lot in uh, over the last year and a half uh, as they've been part of our staff. And uh, the reality is those guys have incredible upside and potential. And both of those guys are are going to be head coaches in this league, but they're not at that point yet. And at the end of the day, the reality is we needed to be very bold and direct with this hire because we have to take this team forward. I mean, we're sitting uh, with the worst record in the NBA right now. We've struggled on both ends of the ball. And the reality was from, from ownership's perspective, from leadership's perspective, 
there wasn't enough confidence that an internal hire could change the course uh, that we needed to change. I mean, it's, it's obviously up to this point has not worked for us. And because of that, we have to do something different. Fitz, I actually liked hearing that, to be honest with you, because it sounded like we've had these guys in. We've we've looked at them as if they might be candidates. And that's not who we think would be ready for the job right now. And we think our problems are big enough that we can't look in-house yet. We need to bring in someone with fresh eyes to take a look at why we're struggling and what needs to be overhauled. I'm okay with that. That doesn't mean that the process of hired and fired instantly and that guy being identified so quickly isn't still something to keep an eye on. But I do think that this reinforces a bit more of the decision-making behind the scenes as to why um, maybe it's not as flawed as, as, as first thought. I think, you know, importantly here, context matters. Now, it is strange when you hire somebody. Remember, they hired a coach away from Toronto staff. So it's rare that we see an in-season hire that takes one assistant coach from a team to another team. I understand that. So is it tampering? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there are some questions about that, but there's also some uh, some context here with the Timberwolves. I mean, their front office is led by Rojas, uh, Rosas, I'm sorry, uh, who's Colombian, right? Uh, and is the NBA's first Latino general manager. Their executive vice president of basketball operations and vice president of basketball operations and player wellness are Indian Americans, and their assistant general manager is black. So diversity is something that they've obviously accomplished throughout the course of their organization. It doesn't change the fact, though, that in a league that is 74% black with the players, there are only seven black coaches. Mm-hmm. So this becomes a constant conversation of is the process broken? Is it being done the right way? I, I respect the heck out of the Timberwolves being willing to come out and be transparent with how they're how they made the decision and why they made the decision. And frankly, as an organization, if it's not going well, you need to admit that at this point and not suddenly reinvest in the people in the building if you don't think that they can change the culture that's making you the worst team in the NBA. Yeah, he did have a history with the coach that they did hire, Finch. He interviewed for the Minnesota job back in 2019 before Saunders, who was hired and and then was just fired, was promoted from interim coach to full-time. So they know him and they vetted him. He also worked with Rosas with the Rockets. So there's a history there. It's maybe not as sudden as as it appeared from the outside. And he did say they were limited with those coaches who were made available for the opportunity. Um, It's worth continuing to ask the questions, though, and continuing to make sure that we get good answers as to why those coaches are not being elevated. Um, In this case, maybe there is a good reason, and he seemed to elucidate them. But uh, obviously worth continuing to to put pressure on these situations and make sure things are being done correctly. And quickly, Uh, Sarah, I'll say asking tough questions is great. Getting tough answers and really listening to them is also imperative in that conversation. Agreed. Agreed. It can't simply be let's attack without uh, allowing for the possibility that there was true vetting done. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.